0: Okay, one last time. Name for me the last five kings of Judah in order. Out loud. Come on. Here we go. Josiah. 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 Anybody know how long Josiah reigned? This is the extra credit question. 31 years. Thirty-one years. Okay. Now none of these other questions are extra credit. Who's the second king? Jehoahaz reigned for how long? Three months. Who comes next? Jehoiakim. How long did he reign? Eleven years. Eleven years. Who comes next? Jehoiachin. How long did he reign? Who comes next? Zedekiah. Zedekiah. How long did he reign? Eleven years. How can I remember that Jehoah has reigned for three months, Jehoiakim for 11 years, Jehoiachin, three months, Zedekiah, 11 years. See that? Three months, 11 years. Three months, 11 years. Who says there's no such thing as providence? God wanted to make this easy for you. See the symmetry there? All right, and then I'm a history teacher, so our music history teacher. So there's got to be a date. You've got to know a date. What's the, in what year did Jerusalem get destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar? 587. 587 BC. Remember, the years BC go backwards. Okay. I am grateful for your forbearance in that exercise. Thank you. We have come to the last Sunday of the course, and let's remember what our goal was. We called this a survey of the book of Jeremiah. It was by no means a study of Jeremiah. We haven't even read half the book. Remember, it is the longest book in the Bible. I know, it it came as a shock on June 4th when I made that claim, but by word count... In the original language, it's significantly longer than the Book of Psalms, more than a thousand words longer than the Book of Isaiah. It's a long book. So we we've just been we've just been uh, uh, enjoying the shallow end of the pool here this summer. Uh, but our goal has been to see if we can come up with some tips to help us in our personal reading of the book, to get more out of it. Because, as with any book of the Bible, it comes with its unique challenges. And to that end, one of the things, the main thing we've been doing is surveying the main topics of the book. So we, we talked about, um, you know, the prophet... Charging the people with sin and calling them to repentance. We've talked about warnings of judgment in chapters two, three, and four. We talked about the prophet's love of object lessons with the two famous pottery parables in chapters eighteen and nineteen. We've we talked about the importance of autobiography in this book. Uh, we talked about persecution as a theme. We talked about grief and complaint as a theme. We talked about evil leadership as in a very important theme in this book. We talked about the exile. And then, best of all, we talked about the new covenant. Remember, Jeremiah is the only writer in the Old Testament who actually uses that phrase, new covenant, in that that glorious 31st chapter well here on our last sunday what i propose we do is two things now that we've discussed all those topics let's now consider the structure of the whole book normally when you study a book you begin with structure when you're flipping through your study bible what's the first thing you get when you get to a new book of the bible you usually get an outline right Well, I thought we'd save the outline for last. Uh, We'll talk about the structure of the book. Having some sense of how it's structured can help us in our personal reading. And then we'll talk about one last topic, the one that Jeremiah puts last. The climax of the book may come as a surprise. It is the fall of Babylon. We'll talk about that. Okay, so structure. Chapter 1 is obviously the introduction, where the prophet is called. And chapter 52 is obviously an epilogue. tells the history of the fall of Jerusalem. I say retell because Jeremiah has already told us all about the fall of Jerusalem back in chapter 39, but here we get it a second time, and this time virtually in the same words as in 2 Kings, and it includes details from after Jeremiah's life. So chapter 52 feels like something written by somebody other than Jeremiah, as an afterword, an appendix. Um, It's not exactly the same as in 2 Kings. It's interesting to compare the two texts. And in between the introduction and the epilogue, I'm going to suggest that the book really unfolds in three sections. Chapters 2 through 20, chapter 21 through 45, and chapter 46 through 51. Now, let me tell you why. Chapters 46 through 51 are obviously a section of their own because They consist of a series of prophecies to nations other than Judah. Nine nations. Egypt, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Philistia. He just goes through this list. So it definitely feels like a section of its own. We'll call that oracles to the nations. And um, it's largely what we'll be talking about today, because we haven't talked about it at all yet. Now, this division is a little less obvious, but I think it's super helpful. And I want to spend a few minutes talking about why chapters 2 through 20 feel like a different section of the book from, sec- from chapters 21 through 45. And, and, and here are things you'll notice as you read the book. Chapters 2 through 20 have very few dates. Just a lot of Jeremiah's preaching. There are some dates, but not many. Chapters 21 through 45 have lots of dates. Not numbers, you know, not 587 B.C., but um, in the third year of this king's rule, or in the eighth year of this king's rule. Lots and lots of dates. That's striking to me. Now, here's another difference. The few dates we get in chapters 2 through 20 all come from before 605 B.C., And all the dates we get in chapters 21 through 45 all come after the year 605. Here's another difference. While there are autobiographical elements in chapters 2 through 20, there are fewer. It's more teaching, more preaching, more poetry. And there's a lot more autobiographical narrative in chapters 21 through 45. So... This is what I think. Something happened in 605. And it's right there in the book. We read in chapter 25 that Jeremiah himself saw the year 605 B.C. as bringing the first part of his ministry to an end. We read in chapter 25, verse 3, For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. And he kind of pivots, and there's something new in his preaching after this point. Jeremiah seems to divide his own ministry between the years before 605 B.C., which is the, um, the 13th year of Josiah. That, no, that's, that's when it begins. Um, to this day, 23 years after the 13th year of Josiah, which is in the middle of, of Jehoiakim's reign. So he sees his ministry in two parts. But then there's also a shift in his writing because as you read... With um, with Aaron, in chapter thirty six. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, that's six hundred five BC. This word came to Jeremiah from the Lord: Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations, from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until. Today, So, in terms of his literary output, Jeremiah makes a distinction between what comes before 605 B.C., the fourth year of King Joachim, and what comes after. There's this scroll that gets written in 605 B.C., and do you remember from the class with Aaron in chapter 36 what happens to that scroll? Baruch reads it before the people at the temple... And they get into trouble, and a year later, in 604 B.C., what does Jehoiakim do? Burns it. It's being read to him in in his palace in its winter. There's this little fire, and he cuts a piece of the scroll, he burns it. He cuts a piece of the scroll, he burns it all up. So, the word of God was gone, right? No, the word of the Lord endures forever, unlike the flowers of the field and the glory of man. So God had Jeremiah write it all over again, word for word. It seems to me that chapters 2 through 20 is that scroll, for all the reasons that I just gave. And then chapters 21 through 45 is what comes later. We can't say it definitively, but I think that's what the text itself itself suggests. So then, this then explains... the the shift in style. And in chapters 21 through 45, we have this relentless march to disaster. The disaster that God had promised. of the emphasis on Jeremiah's own personal story, it's a very personal take on that disaster. So I have, for a long time now, thought about the book in this way, and it helps me process it, and I suggest you give it a try next time you read the book. Um, As we've noted, though... The chronological markers do not follow in chronological sequence. The book jumps forward in time, it jumps back in time. Which is why Jeremiah is constantly telling you in chapters 21 through 45 what year you're in, so you don't get lost. Last week, Joel Brown asked, why? Why doesn't it unfold In a purely chronological way, the way the Gospels do, the the way 2 Kings does. And um, I don't pretend to know the answer to that question for sure, Uh, but I, I will say this that when I read the book of Jeremiah, if I pause and think about what I'm reading now relative to what was said in the previous chapter, or what's going to be said in the next chapter, there are almost always interesting connections to be made, either with what I just read or what I'm about to read. And that suggests to me that the book is ordered, but sometimes it's ordered chronologically, and sometimes it's ordered thematically. So let me give you some examples. We read... Of the passages we read carefully, we read very carefully chapters 18, 19, and 20. It seems obvious to me that those chapters go together. In chapter 18, you have the object lesson of Jeremiah going to the potter's shop and watching the potter at his wheel, working with that malleable, wet clay. And God is teaching us that He is sovereign. And if people repent, God is perfectly capable and willing to relent of the curses he has promised. But if people that he's promised good to rebel, he's perfectly willing and and capable of cursing them instead. But in chapter 19, there's another object lesson. Who knows if it happened later or earlier? There's no time marker. But Jeremiah goes to the potter again, and this time buys a vessel that is finished. It's already been um, heated in in the furnace. It's hard. And he goes out to the garbage dump. Remember? Where's the garbage dump in Jerusalem? Remember? It's that valley to the south, the valley of Hinnom, Ben Hinnom, that becomes a becomes the symbol for hell in the New Testament. And Jeremiah takes this flask, this beautiful flask, and smashes it. And that's a picture of hell. The one pot was malleable. The other one's hard. It's too late. These parables make a pair, don't they? We're meant to think of them in relation to one another. And then chapter 20 gets autobiographical on us because the the parable of the smashed vessel makes the religious leaders so angry that they apprehend Jeremiah and they torture him and that leads to one of his outbursts of complaining to God, what has been called Jeremiah's dark night of the soul in chapter 20. You see how they go together? Even though 18 and 19 don't necessarily fit together chronologically, we have no dates. We don't know when any of these three chapters happened. Or consider what we've been reading the last two weeks. Chapters 30, 31, 32, 33, they all go together. Because that's the prophecy of of the new covenant. Or chapters um, 39 40 41 42 43 44 45 there all of a sudden Jeremiah gets strictly chronological as he describes in detail the actual fall of Jerusalem in 587 and its aftermath and and finally if you find the the shifting back and forth in in time, confusing in the book of Jeremiah. Think about it this way. Is it not a little bit like what happens when we're watching a movie or a TV program and there's a flashback? You know, Columbo's about to solve the crime and all of a sudden you start seeing the actual crime there on the screen, right? Or or, or in a movie or in a TV show when you flash forward, And and suddenly it's revealing something that's going to happen in the future. Often when I read the book of Jeremiah, that's what it feels like. I get a flashback at just the right time to help me to understand better what's happening right now. Or I get a flash forward to help me understand better what's happening right now. It actually increases the coherence of the book. I think, often. I don't want to push that too far, but that's often how it feels. Let me give you an example. We've been talking about this juncture between chapters 20 and 21 here. I think this is a perfect example. Chapters 2 through 20 are all about the years, the, the first 23 years of Jeremiah's ministry, The people are told repeatedly that there's still time to repent. It's not too late. If they turn back, God will relent. And they'll retain the covenant blessings of the land and of the temple. But after Jeremiah's dark night of the soul here in chapter 20, chapter 21 comes like a thunderclap. We leap forward to the very end, to 588, in the middle of the siege. How do we get there? It gives me vertigo. We, go, we leap there because when the siege happens, it's too late. I mean, it's never too late to repent, but it's too late for these Israelites in their lifetime to retain the land And the temple. God says through Jeremiah in chapter 21, which is written at the time of the siege, that the city will fall. And those who do trust and obey God ought to flee the city and surrender to the Babylonians. If they surrender to the Babylonians, they'll live. And that flash forward in chapter 21 Clarifies for me the significance of all these events that he's about to tell. Because now I know how it all's going to end. Just like in a flash forward in a movie. We know where they're all heading. So that's my suggestion for how to think about the structure of this book as you read it. Do you have thoughts or questions about structure? Paul. It's probably obvious, but 2 through 20, Mm -hmm. that's the rewritten scroll. Yes. That, That according to chapter 36 was word for word identical to the one that was burned. How cool is that? I love that story. I was just thinking one of the most poignant flash forwards in literature to me is when uh, Frodo looks into the pool of Galadriel and I feel like that's kind of what's going on in chapter twenty one. Yes. Like just like Frodo's looking and he's seeing everything burning and, and it's kind of what's how that's functioning here. Thank you. All right. Well let's then talk about chapters forty six through fifty one to bring our survey to a close. And actually, let's begin with a quick look back at chapter 1. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. And I want to show you how it was all there from the very beginning. The book of Jeremiah is so coherent. Look in chapter 1 at verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. God consecrated Jeremiah. To what? I appointed you a prophet to what? Judah? Jerusalem? No, the nations. And for 44 chapters, all we hear about is Judah. But it's coming. Look at verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10. Actually, I'll start in the middle of verse 9. This is, these are words we've read repeatedly this summer because it's really key to the meaning of the whole book. It's the theme verse, if you will. Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms, To pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So with those words in our ears, let's turn now to chapter 45. Actually, 46, chapter 46. And we'll just flip through here. Chapter 46, does your Bible have a heading at the top of chapter 46? What does it say? Prophecy against Egypt. So he's going to basically talk about all the nations that were prominent in the life of Judah here at the end of the southern kingdom. He's going to move roughly from the southwest to the northeast. And it's all going to be judgment. God judges them all because they're all rebellious. Most of the time, there's also an offer from God that if this nation repents, he will relent. Um, But not all the nations. Chapter 47, prophecy against the Philistines. Do you see it? Chapter 48, prophecy against Moab. Chapter 49, prophecy against Ammon. Halfway through chapter 49, prophecy against Edom. Later on in chapter 49, prophecy against Damascus. A few verses later, prophecy against Kadar. And Hazor, the end of chapter 49, prophecy against Elam. Chapter 50, prophecy against Babylon. Nine nations. Culminating in the nation that God used to judge Judah. Babylon. And this prophecy against Babylon goes on and on. And You 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 turn the page, you turn the page, you turn the page, you turn the page, you turn the... Chapters 50 and 51 are the prophecy against Babylon. Chapter 51 is one of the longest chapters in the whole Bible. It's the fourth, fifth, or sixth longest chapter in the Bible, depending upon how you count it. And it feels rather repetitive. Jeremiah says the same things repeatedly. And I think there are reasons for this. Uh, it's very detailed. Um, historians have found these oracles against the nations rather helpful because of how detailed they are. They give us insight into the cultures of these different nations. But the, but the Babylonian, the oracle against Babylon is as long as the prophecy against all the other eight nations combined For a reason. It's because it's the climax of the book. The the fall of Babylon and the deliverance of God's people from Babylon to return to their home is one of the two great acts of redemption in the Old Testament. This is huge in the history of salvation. What was the first big act of redemption? Exodus. Exodus. When God brought his people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, God brings his people back from exile, out of the city of Babylon. And John Kelvin thinks the reason these two chapters, 1551, are so repetitive is because what Jeremiah is saying here defies belief if you lived in the 6th century B.C., the last thing you think could happen would be that Babylon would fall. Babylon was the largest city in the world at that time. Archaeologists have figured out what the perimeter of the city was in the 6th century B.C. The walls, you can tell where the walls were. It was four square miles, which may not seem that big to you, unless you are a surveyor, but that's huge. Jerusalem was about a quarter of a square mile. So you do the math. Babylon is 16 times bigger than the city that these exiles came from. The thought that Babylon would fall is hard to fathom. And so John Calvin thinks this is why Jeremiah says the same things over and over again. It gives it time to sink in. I used that. That was a a double meaning. Sink in. You'll see by the end of the lesson why I use that word. And it all actually happened. In 539, Cyrus and and Darius, according to the book of Daniel, conquers the city of Babylon. And that was followed in the 5th and 4th centuries BC by additional disasters against the city of Babylon that I won't get into now. Until in the third century BC, the city was gone, wiped from the face of the earth, and it has never been resettled. In fact, modern Europeans didn't even know where Babylon was until the 19th century. The fall of Babylon is spectacular. In world history. I mean, think of the other cities that you know from the ancient world, other cities mentioned in the Bible. Most of them are still around, right? Is Jerusalem still around? Is Damascus still around? What about Rome? What, what about the cities that Paul went to? Is there still a Thessalonica? Is there still an Athens? Is there still a Corinth? There's still a Nineveh. It's called, it's called Mosul now, but Nineveh's still there. Babylon's a desert. Let's begin at the very end. Chapter 51, beginning in verse 59. Jeremiah 51, verse 59. The word that Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sariah, the son of Nariah, son of Messiah, when he went with Zedekiah, king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. Sariah was the quartermaster. Jeremiah wrote in a book all the disaster that should come upon Babylon. All these words. That are written concerning Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, When you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words, and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off, so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates. And say, Thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her, and they shall become exhausted. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. Remember, we think chapter 52 is written by somebody else. So, Uh, Fourth year of the reign of Zedekiah. Because of our quizzing, you know what that means, right? You have some sense of when that was. Zedekiah was summoned by Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Zedekiah was just a puppet king. And he had to go to Babylon in 594 to report. Doubtless to make sure of his loyalty. And he brought with him a man named Sariah, the quartermaster, that means he probably was the, the, uh, the, the administrator of the, 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 the provisions. Maybe he, found, maybe he was the one who planned where the caravan would spend every night as they traveled on their way to Babylon. But because Saraiah's father is Nariah and his grandfather is Messiah, we know that Saraiah is Baruch's brother. Jeremiah's secretary. So there's a family connection here. And Jeremiah gives Sariah these instructions. He's supposed to read a scroll in its entirety. And what scroll do you think that scroll is? He says, all these words that are written concerning Babylon. These words, present tense, that are written. What words do you think they are that is going to read? Guess. Chapters 50 and 51. So, Sariah, Baruch's brother, is going to read a copy of chapters 50 and 51 in Babylon. That takes great courage. (laughs) Now, we don't know who was listening, but he was going to stand by the Euphrates and read the whole scroll. And then what is he going to do? He's going to take the scroll and what's he going to do? Toss it into the Euphrates. As another object lesson. Jeremiah loves object lessons. And that scroll is gonna sink, just like Babylon, to rise no more. Jeremiah loved object lessons. We've talked about the linen loincloth. We talked about the smashed flask, the deed for real estate held by an army of occupation. Here the message is obvious. Babylon was sunk. Unlike the linen loincloth, the scroll is beyond recovery. The chapter ends with words of finality, thus far the words of Jeremiah. This is the end. I can't read this without thinking of a psalm. Think of Sariah standing there on the banks of the Euphrates in the city of Babylon, reading these words. What psalm do you think of? By the waters of Babylon. Remember Psalm 137? Remember Jeremiah 51, the next time you're reading through the Psalter and you get to, ch- get to Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, that's the Euphrates, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Again, we don't know who was there listening to Sariah as he read the scroll. If they were Babylonians, maybe Sariah died. (laughs) If they were Jews, what would that have meant to them? Did they stand around waiting to see if the scroll would float back to the surface? Well, I wish we had time to read the whole scroll together, but it's a long one. Chapters 50 and 51 are long, but let's read a few representative samples. Let's start uh, in, in chapter... We'll skip chapter 50. Let's start in chapter 51... I'll read verses 6 through 10 as a start. Chapter 51, verses 6 through 10. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her and let us go each to his own country, for her judgment has reached up to heaven and has been lifted up even to the skies the Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Flee. He's saying He's saying to the Jews, you don't, you don't want to share in Babylon's destiny here. But notice the hint of sadness. In verses 8 and 9, this fascinates me. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. Remember what Jeremiah said in his letter to the exiles in chapter 29. Seek the welfare of the city in which you dwell. Remember that? Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she was not healed. Chapter 51 is a very joyful chapter, but there is sadness mixed with the joy. Remember what Ezekiel says over, more than once. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. So there's a, it's not all joy. There's regret at the fate of the rebellious. And, and while we're there in verse 9, look at the irony at the, at the end of the verse. For her judgment has reached up to heaven and has been lifted up even to the skies. When you read in the Bible about something reaching up to heaven, do you think of something in the book of Genesis? What in Genesis tries to reach up to heaven? The tower of Babel, which in the Hebrew is the very same word as Babylon. In our English Bibles, we switch after that story from saying Babel to Babylon. We switch to the Greek word Babylon. But the Hebrew, all the way through, is just Babel. Man's attempt to build himself up to the skies ends only in building up his judgment. Let's skip ahead. Look at verse 34. Verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has rinsed me out. The violence done to me and to my kinsmen be upon Babylon, let the inhabitant of Zion say. Remember Psalm 137. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will plead your cause and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her fountain dry, and Babylon shall become a heap of ruins, the haunt of jackals, a horror and a hissing without inhabitants. So notice how Nebuchadnezzar is described, He's he's a monster, he's a dragon, eating God's people, leaving the vessel clean. That he has rinsed me out, that's a pun. It can mean rinsed out, which is what you do once you've cleaned your plate, right? You rinse the plate before you put it in the dishwasher, right? But the Hebrew can also mean vomit. Hence the prayer of verse 35. The violence done to me and to my kinsmen be upon Babylon. My blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea, let Jerusalem say. And God answers that prayer. Verse 36, behold, I will plead your cause and take vengeance for you. God answers prayer. God heard Psalm 137, and he answers. And notice the reversal of the the situation that we opened the book with. What was chapter 2 all about? It was shocking. Way back, when was it? June 11th, or whenever it was. We talked about God filing for divorce. Remember that horrible day when we talked about God filing for divorce? Well, now, instead of God in the courtroom making his case against his unfaithful bride, what do we have? We have God pleading her cause in the courtroom. Let's skip ahead to verse 54. Verse 54. A voice, a cry from Babylon, the noise of great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans. For the Lord is laying Babylon waste and stilling her mighty voice. Their waves roar like many waters. The noise of their voice is raised. For a destroyer has come upon her, upon Babylon. Her warriors are taken. Their bows are broken in pieces. For the Lord is a God of recompense. He will surely repay. I will make drunk her officials and her wise men, her governors, her commanders, and her warriors. They shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake, declares the Lord, whose name is the Lord of Hosts. What kind of a God is God? Verse 56, he is a God of recompense. He will surely repay. All this is just. God is just. God used Babylon to judge his people, but that doesn't make Babylon's sins okay. Babylon too will be judged for her sins. Just as our sins, your sins, and my sins, in as much as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, are judged at Calvary, everybody else's sins are judged as well on Judgment Day. God is just. And this whole bit about officials being drunk that, too, is a prophecy. Think of our evening services with Deckard this spring. What's this referring to? When you think about the fall of Babylon and drunk officials, do you think of Daniel Four and Belshazzar's feast? And in the midst of their carousing the Hand writes on the wall? Well, one more point. Look at verse 48. Then the heavens and the earth and all that is in them shall sing for joy over Babylon, for the destroyers shall come against them out of the north, declares the heavens and the earth? are singing for joy. There's, there's something apocalyptic in this language. Again and again. Remember how prophecy works in the Bible. Without exception, there's immediate fulfillment and there's ultimate fulfillment. And all of this comes back at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 17, 18, and 19, God uses Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51 to help us understand the end of all things. Babylon becomes a type, an archetype for the city of man. The center of all man-centered systems of corrupt power and, and human glory. Turn to Revelation 17. Please I really think there's an apocalyptic element to chapters 15:51, 50 because, after all, Darius did not destroy Babylon in 539. Now Babylon soon was destroyed, but it was a gradual thing. Jeremiah's description of the destruction of Babylon and again and again invites us to think in cosmic terms. I can't read all of this, but let me read excerpts. Chapter 17, verse 1 of the book of Revelation. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. Do you remember the golden cup in Jeremiah 51, verse 7? Full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That golden cup with which Babylon makes the nations drunk in in chapter 51 of Jeremiah comes back again here in Revelation 17. Skip ahead to chapter 18. Revelation 18, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Remember that from Jeremiah 51? Lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven. Do you remember that from Jeremiah 51? Look at verse 21 of chapter 18 in Revelation. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, "So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence, and will be found no more." Well, what's that? Obviously, a reference to Sariah throwing the scroll into the Euphrates River. Let's keep going. Verse twenty-two. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. This is referencing Jeremiah 25, where the sound of the bride and the bridegroom are silenced. We have to stop there. But as we move into chapter 19, the fall of Babylon is cause for great rejoicing in heaven. For God's judgments are true and just. This is what culminates in the hallelujah chorus. In chapter 19. For the Lord our God omnipotent reigneth. That's how Jeremiah ends his book. It's all because of Jesus. Let's sing the same song we sang two weeks ago, 345. Thee are spoken, Zion City of our God. Um, yeah, go ahead and stand. When we sing the word thee in a hymn, Don't we, like, by default, think we're talking to God because these, this kind of archaic religious language? Are we talking to God in this hymn? Glorious things of God are spoken? No, who's the thee? Zion. Zion. We're We're talking to a mountain in Palestine? Who is Zion? The church. You are. This is a hymn you're singing to the person in front of you. In the pew in front of you, the person next to you, the person behind you. When you sing in verse 2, see the streams of living water, you're begging your brother and your sister in the Lord to use his imagination to remember what Jesus did for us, this eternal life that is ours. Let's sing it. O Lord, our God, the glory is all yours. It's only in Christ's name that we glory. What a great salvation you have accomplished for your name's sake. And uh, we pray that you would bless our reading of the book of Jeremiah uh, all the rest of our days, for we ask it in Jesus' name.